0: What will happen to the Druze, the Copts, and the Yazudis in the Middle East? Gerard Russell joins us to talk about these religions and others, which he writes about in his new book, Heirs to Forgotten Kingdoms, Journeys into the Disappearing Religions of the Middle East.
1: The tolerance that people show to each other, the willingness to coexist, in the end, can outweigh all of the persecutions put together.
0: What is an atheist to do living in a highly religious country like America? Phil Zuckerman will be here to talk about his book, Living the Secular Life, New Answers to Old Questions.
2: Well, then how are they getting the things that religion has traditionally provided? How do they raise their kids? How do they deal with the the pain of mortality?
0: Alexander Alter will be here with Notes from the Publishing World, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. I've got Gerard Russell calling in from London to talk about his new book, Heirs to Forgotten Kingdoms, Journeys into the Disappearing Religions of the Middle East, reviewed this week in our global religion issue of the Book Review. Hi, Gerard. Hello. So the book is about a number of religions in the Middle East. How did you come to to write it?
1: Well, I was a British diplomat in the Middle East for many, many years. I lived in Cairo and learned Arabic there, and I lived in Jerusalem and also in Baghdad. Jeddah and Kabul, and in each of these places, or most of them, I came across these remarkable ancient religions that had survived thousands and thousands of years. So, in Cairo, you know, I'm I'm a great fan of ancient history, and when I discovered that there were some words from ancient Egyptian, there were customs of the ancient Egyptians that had survived in the Coptic Christian Church, uh, that fascinated me. I learned that at Easter time the Copts sing a hymn which is adopted from the mummification ceremonies of the ancient pharaohs, and which, with some changes to its wording, became a Christian hymn, which is still sung once a year today to the same tune. In Jerusalem, I discovered the Samaritans, who are an amazing group, uh, 771 people, who trace their descent back to Joseph, uh, and who practice. The traditions of Exodus, precisely as they were laid down, they have every year a Passover sacrifice involving the slaughter of lambs, and on their holy mountain near the city of Nablus, they smear the forehead of their firstborn sons with the blood of the lamb in the ancient tradition, uh, which only they practice today.
0: I think for many readers, it'll be a surprise that, you know, the Samaritans still exist um, or that the Druze or Zoroastrians and then others, a couple of the Kalasha and the Mendeans and Yazidis. I don't know if many of our readers would even be have heard these of these religions if perhaps in the Yazidis case, it hadn't been for uh, the emergence of ISIS. Tell us about what happened recently in August with ISIS and the Yazidis.
1: Well, it's a very terrible story. The Yazidis have been long persecuted. They have over 70 persecutions that they list that have happened to them through history. Uh, Most recently, even before ISIS, were the victims of the world's second worst terrorist attack, uh, when over 700 of them were killed in 2007. ISIS, in August, of course, penetrated into their home, their heartland, you know, of Sinjar, which is in northwest Iraq. Uh, and slaughtered, many of them slaughtered the men and took the women as slaves in accordance with an ideology of the extremists that says they're licensed to do that. And they do it because the Yazidis are, in their eyes, uh, pagans. The Yazidis don't follow Islam or Christianity or Judaism, but have a religion of their own, uh, m- much of which goes back into the ancient past. Uh, it has similarities to the religion of Mithras worshippers who uh, of 2nd and 3rd century Rome, it has similarities to the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians. So that, for example, they sacrifice a bull once a year at the shrine of Sheikh Shams. Sheikh Shams, a word or name that could sound Muslim, but actually uh, is very, very similar to the ancient sun god Shamash, to whom bulls were also sacrificed And indeed, we have an account of a bull sacrifice to Shamash from 6,000 years ago, meaning that this is an incredibly ancient custom, uh, which the Yazidis still maintain.
0: When does the religion date to?
1: Well, the modern form of the religion dates back just 1,000 years. So it dates to the 11th, 12th century. Uh, It was founded by a man called Sheikh Adi. Again, it's very mysterious and perplexing that it was founded by a man who appears to have been a Muslim missionary, But obviously, what he brought in terms of Islam was only skin deep. So they have adopted words from Islam and concepts, but the traditions and customs remained stubbornly much, much more ancient. And this is embodied in the figure that they revere the figure of the peacock angel, Malactus, who is, as they see it, the lord of this world and whom they identify with Lucifer. So we think of Lucifer as an evil thing, the devil, uh, who rebelled in in the Jewish and Muslim and Christian tradition, rebelled against God, has not been forgiven and is unredeemed, the Yazidis say, no, he has been forgiven and is redeemed. And therefore, they kiss the bronze peacock images of him, which uh, they keep in, in certain Yazidi shrines.
0: Have they been persecuted by Christians as well for this?
1: Yes, they were. Uh, uh, the history of persecution in the Middle East is common to all, all faiths, uh, the Christian Byzantines, were prior to the Muslims, were also extremely oppressive towards those who didn't share their beliefs, even Christian groups, which is part of the reason for the early success of Islam. And one of the things I wanted to show in As in to Forgotten Kingdoms was, you know, what the history of the Middle East shows us is that actually It's when faiths have been most open to others, when cultures have been open to different religions, to a diversity of belief, that they've been strongest and most prosperous. And it's when they have closed their minds to the ideas of others and said, no, we don't want to have any except one religion in our kingdom or our empire, that they have declined. And so ISIS, which claims that the history of Islam is one of bloodshed, And those, you know, critics of Islam who say it has nothing but bloodshed in its history uh, are both completely wrong. It is, in fact, uh, much more complex than that. The history of humanity is much more complex than that. And the reality that these religions have survived for 1,400 years under Islam, and even longer, of course, under the rule of monotheists, under Christians, means that we can see that the tolerance that people show to each other, the willingness to coexist in the end, can outweigh all of the persecutions put together.
0: And you argue in the book that Islam specifically was quite tolerant for a long period of time of these religions.
1: Well, certainly there have been some outstanding individuals who have been tremendously broad-minded and open-minded towards these other religions. And I'd say that in the early centuries of Islam is when you see that most clearly. So in the first few hundred years. The Arabs, some put it down to the fact that the Arabs were more tolerant than other groups that later came along, the Turks and the Mongols. It's also the case that as the Muslim countries declined, as their fortunes declined, as they faced the Crusaders in the West, the Mongol invaders in the East, you see less tolerance and you see more oppression. I would say then that in the 19th, 20th centuries, you also have a great resurgence of, if you like, tolerance, the acceptance of others, the concept of citizenship that you're As an Egyptian, for example, the ruler of Egypt in the 1860s said, all, whether Christian or Muslim, uh, are Egyptians alike, and indeed praised also a Jewish Egyptian playwright as Egypt's Moliere, and he wanted to build a nation that drew on all of its religious traditions. That is something which can help remind us that we shouldn't give up on the idea of, if you like religious liberalism in the Middle East, it's a little too strong a word, but certainly The idea that people can coexist, that they can accept and even grant equality to others, regardless of religious belief, that people of different religions can coexist in the Middle East is proven. And what we've seen in the last few decades, which I think, you know, is very abhorrent, it's been painful for me to to go to the Middle East and see uh, the intolerance that people show to each other. This is an aberration. It's not the nature of things.
0: What happened to these religions um, during the convulsions of the 20th century, particularly the rise and fall of the Ottoman Empire? Did it impact them, or were they in isolated communities unaffected by the world wars?
1: Many of these religious groups existed for a long time in remote places, and that protected them from governments. And it also meant that they lived without much contact, intellectually, if you like, with the outside world. So sometimes that helped them to keep their traditions without Really, any change for a very long time. But also, the events, I mean, instability certainly affects them. In the end, it affects them in in terrible ways. The Christians of Iraq have gone through forced migration after forced migration, massacre after massacre, because they were driven out by the Ottomans in 1915 16 during the Armenian Genocide and were then uh, once more driven out in successive uh, waves in the years after that, you know, what what has really affected them has been the move in the Middle East in the last 50, 60 years, the rise of Islamism, the rise of the concept that, you know, that Muslims can be strongest if they unify around their religion. The problem being that if you are not a Muslim and you live in the Middle East, and there are over 10 million non-Muslims who live in the Middle East, then of course that's very problematic because you can't then be an equal citizen uh, if religion is the criterion for identity. And that is, you know, part of what's driving them out is, is the fear that they are no longer wanted in their own communities.
0: You you said 10 million non-Muslims in the Middle East.
1: Yes. Excluding Israel, by the way.
0: Okay. Um, what are the numbers like for these religions? How many, um, you said there are only 771 Samaritans?
1: By far the biggest non-Muslim religion in the Arab world is Christianity and by far the largest number of Christians are in Egypt, where you have around 5 million or more. But if you look at the Yazidis, they claim that they are as many as a million. It may, in fact, be about half that number. It's quite hard to be sure. It's impossible to be sure of any of these numbers because uh, they've resisted being counted in censuses for various reasons. All the records are pretty poor in the Middle East in general. The Kalasha, just a few thousand in Pakistan. The Zoroastrians probably... In Iran itself, about 5,000, perhaps 10,000, um, but they are more in India, and the Samaritans, as you say, very, very few. Mandians, about, perhaps about 30,000, 40,000. It's quite hard to know. Quite a lot have also migrated. What one sees in Iraq very tragically is that the Mandians are now at around 10%. They say themselves around 10% of them remain from their numbers in 2003. Uh, the Christians. Two-thirds have gone.
0: Are there many refugees leaving the Middle East from these groups? And, and are oh, there places yeah. in particular where, they, where they've settled?
1: Well, it sort of depends on really where their families are. So quite a lot of the Yazidis go to Germany. Sweden is a favorite destination. It's relatively liberal in its immigration laws. Uh, Australia and Canada are also increasingly preferred. Um, the Christians, quite a lot of them go to America. The book ends, as To Forgotten Kingdoms ends, with this sort of epilogue which looks at Christians and other groups moving to America and to Britain and elsewhere in the world. In metropolitan Detroit, I came across a supermarket in which I heard a woman speaking Aramaic, the language of of Christ, which has survived in metropolitan Detroit, to my surprise, because there are 200,000 Iraqi Christians who live there. About half of them have come since 2003.
0: Are there any encouraging signs for these religions? Any pockets of tolerance even in the Middle East? Or is this just a a sort of ongoing and intensifying decrease in their populations?
1: Well, I think if you look at the Gulf states, so I know the UAE a bit, and you'll see there many churches being built because they have a very large migrant population that lives there who can worship there freely. You'd see the same in in other bits of of the sort of much more prosperous bits of, of the Gulf, not in Saudi Arabia, of course. You would see in Kurdistan, in northern Iraq, the Kurds are very keen to have these religions stay. You know, for as long as people fear for the future, as long as they don't think there's stability, as long as they don't think that things are safe, they will always seek to leave. And that's the number one thing. It's not that they leave for money, although they can often do better in the West but they fear for their future. You know, it is, unfortunately, a very slow but inexorable decline. I would say, though, one thing to remember, as I did the research for this book and looked back at 18th, 19th century people who had encountered these religions, I um, realized that all of them had predicted the demise of these religions. They said, oh, the Druze will never continue to live in the mountains of Lebanon uh, utterly you know, in command of their own destiny. The Samaritans will become extinct within uh, our lifetimes. The Kalasha are doomed. And actually, all of these religions have survived, and they show remarkable staying power. And of course, as I say, have preserved ideas and customs from the very remote past, just showing how much continuity there is in human thought, much more than you might imagine. The ideas of the Greek philosophers the cult even of the Greek philosophers survives among the Alawites and the Druze with ideas that go back 2,500 years. So there is a remarkable staying power about some of our customs, about some of our ideas, much more than we would imagine.
0: Well, you've revealed some of the mysteries here. The book again is Heirs to Forgotten Kingdoms, Journeys into the Disappearing Religions of the Middle East by Gerard Russell. Gerard, thank you so much. Thank you. Alexandra Alter joins me now with Notes from the Publishing World. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So we're going to do a big recap here of the year in publishing. We are.
3: You all have been talking about the best books of the year, so I thought I might talk about the biggest publishing stories of the year. There was tons of news this year in publishing, but of course, the one story that captivated everybody that... Had everybody in the publishing world on tenor hooks was the standoff between Amazon and Hachette, which dragged on for months and prompted a whole conversation about Amazon's role in publishing, how much power they have, whether they have too much control over the whole marketplace and ebook prices. And so this this issue was resolved. They recently even re-upped their contract with Macmillan, Simon & Schuster, and Hachette. Um, but the conversation is ongoing today. Macmillan CEO. As he announced their new agreement, said, you know, Amazon accounts for 64% of our ebook sales. We need to explore other channels. So people are still watching this as a potential threat to the industry in a way.
0: Wow. Okay. Is there a number two story? Because <laughs> that is two. a big one.
3: That's a big one. Another macro trend that we're seeing this year in publishing is another seismic shift in the way people are reading. For a long time, the big story was digital reading. More people were buying ebooks. Ebooks were growing by double and triple digits year over year and month over month. And ebooks have really stabilized, slowed down. They grew about 6% this year. Meanwhile, paperbacks were up 5%. That's a category that's been dying that everyone said was dying of slow deaths. So you're seeing you know, ebooks are sort of slowing down. On the other hand, digital audiobooks are surging. Digital audiobooks were up 27% this year. Uh, If you wanted to make broad inferences from this, it seems like fewer people are reading digitally, but a lot more people are listening digitally. And this is probably has a lot to do with smartphone adoption and the fact that everybody has a digital audio player in their pocket right now. Another big shift its actually a continuation of a trend that's been building, but it's become even more pronounced is the sort of the rise and the dominance of young adult fiction and children's publishing. Sales of children's books were up 22 percent this year. They're kind of carrying the entire industry. And it's, you know, before it was really driven, I think, by these big franchises, by Harry Potter, by Twilight and the Hunger Games. Now it's all John Green. Now, it's all John Green and Divergent but you're seeing a lot more you know a, a real diversity of the kind of books that are selling well um, it's not only driven by movie adaptations there's nonfiction. there's memoir there's you know books about really difficult subjects like suicide and rape. And the whole category is really, um, it seems to be diversifying and standing up year over year as the one area of publishing that everyone's excited about that's growing where there are big advances still happening.
0: You're here. Okay. No. Do
3: we have, go back to the depressing news for number four? or <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, well, the news for uh, number four is exciting for some people. It's uh, the return of the seven-figure book deal. This was the year where, you know, after advances had been declining for authors steadily for years, suddenly publishers are throwing money at people again. And it's not just big names. It's not just bestsellers. This fall, there were three seven-figure book deals for debut novelists leading up to the Frankfurt Book Fair. So people in in the industry are a little divided over whether this is a good thing. Of course, agents love it. Authors love it. Publishers and editors are a little concerned. If you give you know, a first time novelist, $2 million, and their book doesn't perform, it's going to maybe torpedo their career, not to mention your your budget for the year. So there's a question over whether this is a good thing. We're going to see a lot of this playing out probably next year when some of these seven figure books hit the marketplace to That's see if they right. can find an audience. There's, I
0: think, at least one coming in September of 2015. That's uh, right. Readers will judge.
3: And just a little bit about the year ahead. I think it's going to be a fantastic year for fiction next year with new books by Jonathan Franz. And he's got first big novel in a while. People are extremely excited about that. And another novel from Judy Bloom, which has been fifteen years in the works. So I think Tony Morrison
0: also. And Tony Morrison,
3: exactly. Um, so we'll have a lot to talk about in the podcast next year. All
0: right. Well I would look forward to that. Thanks Me too. Alexandra. Thank you. Phil Zuckerman is here to talk about his new book, Living the Secular Life, New Answers to Old Questions. Hi, Phil. Hi, Pamela. So you are a professor of um, sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College in California. That's an interesting title. Are you the only professor of secular studies out there, or is this a an area that has many professors that I'm unaware of.
2: No, you're right. It's it's brand new. We were the first program. So there's. I got five colleagues in the department, and we're all interdisciplinary. So our primary appointment is in other fields, you know, political science or social, but but yeah, I guess you could say I'm the first head of the first department of secular studies. That that's correct.
0: People could conceivably double major in secular and religious studies.
2: You know what? The first graduate did just that. He, uh, William Holt. He um, he was majoring already in religious studies, but when we opened this new major, he was thrilled, and he ended up double majoring, which I thought was just fantastic.
0: So you've written five books, three specifically before this one on secularism. What made you decide to write Living the Secular Life? How is this different from the other books that you've written?
2: Things um, so sort of the rise of the nuns, you know the n o n e s has been in the news lately. Okay, we're seeing a greater proportion of people who are saying they're non-religious, and that's that's been in the news. But what hasn't been stressed is that it's actually good news. I wanted, I guess, I wanted my fellow Americans to know, you know, this this rise of secularism in the United States and in the world is not something to be feared, not something to be fretted over. But it's it's actually good news. Good things come with secularism at the individual level, the national level, and and for the world at large. So, so i guess that was one main main theme for this for writing this new book and the other one was just really more of a question it's like you know I've been studying religion a long time. I know it, I know it, it does a lot of good in the world. It, does, it, functions, it has a lot of functions for people's lives. There's, a, there's re, good reasons that religion exists. It provides community and morality and helps answer riddles of death and life and meaning and existence. So, I mean, there's, there's good reasons that people are religious and have been throughout most of our history and in most cultures. But we're now seeing this rise of people saying they're not. We're seeing more and more people walking away. If you got 20 or 30 percent of Americans saying they're not religious... Well, then, how are they getting the things that religion has traditionally provided? How do they raise their kids? How do they deal with the, the pain of, of, of mortality? How do they find community? How do they have morals and ethics? So, sort of, I was also just interested in exploring the ways in which this growing body of Americans are living their lives without without religion.
0: How does that work? So is it in some ways a kind of guide to living the secular life? Yes and no. Uh, I
2: definitely was not, did not set out to write a self-help book. I think there's, I mean, secular culture in itself is is the last place you'll find people seeking, you know, somebody else's wisdom on how they should live their lives. In fact, one of the main values of of secular culture is sort of, you know, people living, uh, deciding for themselves how they want to live, what they want to believe, what they want to do or not do. And yet, in the stories that I've revealed and in the sort of themes I explore, I definitely think someone could see it as a guide. I've I've had many conversations with people who, when I tell them about the book, they think, ah, man, I could use this with my kids, or I'd love to to have this for dealing with my in-laws or whatnot. So I wouldn't say it's explicitly a guide, but I think implicitly, it definitely has that aspect to it.
0: Because a lot of what you do in the book is really interview people who are non-religious and sort of show how they have grappled with issues like um, extended family, um, child rearing, dealing with um, school environments that might not be as open to secular lifestyles as they are to more religious ones. Are you aiming to kind of tell through their stories to kind of show how it's done in a way?
2: Absolutely. That That was definitely you know I was genuinely curious, and then when you then when you hear these people's stories and you hear about you know people who survive a spinal cord injury without you know believing in God and never believed in God or how they how they weather these kinds of uh, drug addiction or whatnot, yes, yeah. so I, I was definitely hoping that through those stories, other readers could definitely take some some of these uh some of these, I don't know, life lessons or orientations or perspective experiences and apply it to their own lives.
1: Absolutely.
0: You mentioned earlier this term nuns and call it, you know, it's kind of a a media label um, that nearly a fifth of the American population uh, chooses to identify themselves um, as unaffiliated with any religion. But interestingly, within that, only about 30 percent of that one fifth, self identify as atheists or agnostics. So that brings up this question of, of terminology, and I don't think it's just a semantic one. There's nuns, there's atheist, there's agnostic, there's secular, there's secular humanist. What are the differences between these terms, and, and how important is the, the naming of this?
2: The first thing that has to be acknowledged is this sort of stigma around the term atheist. People, uh, it's a negative term for a lot of people. It's got a bad ring to it, something cold about it, uh, something too hostile about it. So in study after study and survey after survey, we find that when you ask people if they believe in God, they might say yes or no. So let's say those that say no, then you could ask in the same survey, a few questions later, are you an atheist? They'll often say no as well. So you, so you get people sort of expressing atheism in orientation, but they don't like the label. They resist the label. So, for instance, the American Religious Identification Survey, when asked of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S-S, about their actual beliefs concerning God, about a half came in as atheistic or agnostic in orientation, but far fewer were willing to label themselves such. So there's always that issue of people's actual orientation and then how they want to self-designate, and because of that stigma with the term atheist, it's always under underreported. But, you know, when we talk about these different labels, are you talking, you know, specifically about the God question? Well, in that case, you know, we're getting, are you an atheist, or you are a theist, or are you in the middle somewhere? Unsure, agnostic tends to fall in that category as someone who can't quite say one way or the other. Then you've got humanist, and that's just someone who places their faith and hopes in humanity to to solve the world's problems and, and sees the best in people. Uh, and you can be religious and a humanist as well. Um, however, when you say secular humanist, right away that secular designates non-religious, someone who doesn't affiliate with the religion, uh, doesn't believe in religious teachings, doesn't believe in the supernatural. So I would say that the nuns in general, you know, that's right. They're just someone who says, hey... I don't affiliate with a religion. They could be believers. And and conversely, it gets even more complex. A lot of people who tick a religion are themselves atheistic or agnostic. I mean, if someone asks me, am I Jewish, I'm going to say, yeah, I also happen to be an atheist or agnostic and a secular humanist, but I affiliate with my Jewishness through heritage and culture. So a lot of people who tick, you know, Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist may not be believers as well, so it
0: kind of cuts both ways. One of the interesting things about religion in terms of tracking it is that, if I'm not mistaken, the Census Bureau does not track religion in terms of the questions that they ask or or non-religion.
2: You're right. That's correct. They, they, they do not do that.
0: So we're left with things like this Pew Research uh, study, the study you alluded to earlier, which I believe is conducted by a university.
2: Yeah, you've got the Pew, you've got Gallup, you've got the General Social Survey, you've got the American Religious Identification Study. So you get, you have to have these different independent studies. When Gallup came out a couple years ago and placed uh, non-religious folks at thirty percent, so it's it's it depends on the study, it depends on the survey,
0: it depends on the phrasing too, I would imagine, because you know some. Some people will say they're not religious, but they consider themselves spiritual in some way, um, or um, they don't identify with a specific religion, but they have a personal religion.
2: What you. Called Sheilaism by Robert Bella and Habits of the Heart. So, yeah, you, you've got so much. There's a lot of gray areas in this, and 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 I think uh, as a in secular studies, we're trying to actually map and tease that out. You know, we've been studying religion for so long. We know there's so many typologies when it comes to religiosity, so many different continuums and so many different designations and criteria, and we we know there's this kind of religion and that kind of religion and this kind of faith and that kind of faith. Where's non-religion just sort of been this like lumped category, like, you know, non-religious. What does that mean? And, and actually teasing that out is, is actually quite exciting, but there's a lot of work to be done there because, as you said, and then you throw spirituality in the mix, it becomes even more complex.
0: One of the interesting things, too, I think, is you talked about negation and that atheism is a kind of a term of negation. I've always found it interesting, the difference between saying, well, I don't believe in God versus I believe that there is no God or I believe that there are no gods is a very different, it it sounds like um, you're just playing around with words, but there's actually an important distinction there.
2: Yeah, especially in atheist communities, you'll you'll find a lot of people debating this and quite hotly so. You know, it's kind of the context, you know, are you with Iran laws are you at a dinner party? Are you on an airplane that's you know five hours long and, and you're on the window seat? It kind of depends on what you're trying to convey. Atheist, you know, is saying what you don't believe. It's saying either you lack a belief in or you deny a belief in or you don't accept belief in. And I've always had trouble with that because, while you know, okay, it's a proud stance to take sometimes if you want to really make a point. It really is putting theism at number one, at the center of the conversation and saying, well, okay, here's theism and I don't believe in that or I lack a belief in that. But it's also a term of negation. It's saying what one isn't. And, and if, if someone asks me what I am, I would much rather emphasize the values that I hold dear to, the experiences I have, the, the positive elements of my identity, not simply what I, what I lack or don't agree with.
0: I think, you know, when you talk about the context, that's very important because America, unlike Europe, for example, is... In many ways, an increasingly religious culture, religious society. Has it become harder over the course of the last, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years to be a secular American? It really depends
2: where in the country we're talking. If you're talking, you know, Berkeley, California, Burlington, Vermont, Eugene, Oregon, uh, the Upper West Side, I mean, I've interviewed so many secular people who live their lives, you know, year after year without ever even thinking about it. Their neighbors are secular, they, there's no... Prayers at the school board meetings. There's, it's not really in their face at all, unless they happen to, you know, switch past Fox News or something on their way to CNN or whatnot. They, and they're actually able to live lives that are so secular that they don't even, they don't think about it much. They're not. Uh, strong in their secularity. They don't have to call themselves atheists. They're not interested in reading Richard Dawkins because their lives are just pleasantly going along without much in the way of anybody enforcing their religion. And then you, you can switch to parts of uh, Mississippi, Alabama, the Bible Belt, Idaho, even, even places here in California that are east of, of the mountain range. And wow, religion is dominating uh, social life. Uh, little league games are starting with prayers. Uh, the school board members are, are pushing creationism. they the politicians, the everything from, from sporting events to all social games. I had friends who moved to a small town outside of Modesto, and it was like the first question they were asked when they started unloading the boxes was, what church do you go to? And their children were harassed in the schoolyard. So it really does depend where you're at. So I'd say in some respects it's more easier to be secular than ever before because we have growing swaths of secular culture in certain parts of the country that make it a non-issue. On the other hand, with growing religious Christian fundamentalism in other parts of the country and a strong Christian religious right that's that's implanted itself in, in city local governments, it actually becomes even more burdensome to be secular because your your patriotism is suspected, your morality is doubted, and so it really depends where we're talking.
0: Um, you mentioned Mississippi. Uh, Let Let's talk about uh, Tanya Hinkle, which we should say is a pseudonym. Um, She's a mother of three who lives in small town, Mississippi. What happened with her children in school?
2: Basically, she was one among many mothers I spoke with. I spoke to a lot of moms and dads in, in rural parts of America where religion is quite dominant. So not only were they sort of outsiders because everything revolved around religion, all social events, but the public school where her kids were going to school was very dominant uh, by a certain evangelical Christianity. So the kids were being teased on the in the in the playground when the when Tanya went to complain. Well, the teachers were all Christian too. In fact, one of the teachers of one of her kids was always talking about her missionary work and oh, who was in church today? Kind of looking at the kids. I saw you. I saw you. I didn't see you. And then the Principal herself was very involved in church life, and all the advice she kept getting was, you know, if your kids just went to church, there would be no problems. So we're sorry your kids are being teased, but they really ought to be at church. And the, the worst part was the secretary in the principal's office really had it out for Tanya. And when Tanya's mother, the kid's grandma, was dying, when she got noticed from the old age home that, that the grandma was about to die, she went to the school to try and pick up her kids. And the secretary wouldn't release the children, even though that's, of course, illegal. She said to Tanya, no, you need a note from such and such. I can't let your kids go. And she said, well, their grandma's about to die. And the secretary said, oh, They'll see their grandma in heaven if you would just get them right with the Lord, you know, and and this was devastating for Tanya, and she uh, didn't really have the wherewithal or the agency. She didn't know what her rights were, but the next day, of course, her children stayed at home, and she ended up homeschooling them as a secular mom, which is kind of interesting because... You know, most people that homeschool in America are evangelical Christians. So, you know, upwards of 78% of homeschooled kids are there because their parents think the school, the public schools are too secular. And here was this mom in the South who found the public school to be too religious. And, and through the Internet, she found other moms, and they started kind of a secular homeschooling group in their, in their rural part of Mississippi. It's a fascinating story.
0: But it's hard um, because I think that many, uh, you know, this sort of secular temperament, if we could generalize just for a second, is that they aren't... Is They are very individual and they're not joiners or tend not to be even um, organized kind of um, forms of secular humanism, like the Society for Ethical Culture. They're not large organizations. Did you find that the people you talk to temperamentally or intellectually have a disinclination to join a kind of a secular organization?
2: the short answer is yes, you are right. There's a strong correlation we're finding between secularity and individualism. These things seem to reinforce each other. They seem to go hand in hand. In fact, if I had to point to one area of secular culture that I think is worrisome is that kind of strong individualism, which of course has a lot of benefits in certain respects, but we know sociologically uh, religious folks enjoy greater social capital. Uh, there's benefits with being part of a community that, that I could get into. So that that's the short answer. On the other hand, what I have found is, again, there's a range. And I found I've interviewed a lot of folks who were raised with religion. They were raised Mormon, or they were raised Catholic, or they were raised whatnot. At a certain point in their lives, they just couldn't believe it anymore. So they had kind of intellectual problems with the faith. They had no faith, or they lost their faith, and so they were struggling, and they, they just couldn't stomach it anymore. So they had to walk away from that church. They didn't believe in it, or they didn't like the politics of it, but they then found there was a loss there. They missed the community. They missed that kind of multi generational getting together with a purposeful group of people who, you know, the events and the songs and the community, those folks Granted, are a minority. Most secular people kind of walk away from religion, and and that's that. But there is a a, a strong enough group of people now that do miss it, and that's why you're seeing the kind of rise of these Sunday assemblies, uh, meet-up groups. In fact, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd be hard pressed to find a you know group of humanists getting together for coffee once a week. Now, every town and city in America, you can quickly and easily connect with other secularists, other atheists, humanists, free thinkers in a variety of social settings. So, as we're seeing this rise of non-religious people, we are seeing a similar rise of people that do seek out some type of community in a more secular fashion.
0: Often, again, to generalize, but many religious people will conflate ethics or morals with religion and make an assumption that because people don't have a religion, that they don't hold to some kind of ethical framework or have some kind of moral system that they believe in. So do you find that, that that's often a part of that yearning to connect with others, to, to sort of have Create and agree or discuss ethics on a, a group setting, or
2: most secular people know that that association of secularity with immorality is just so blatantly false. They live ethical lives predicated on treating other people the way they want to be treated. They're very empathetic. Uh, Vern Bankson out at USC has this, the largest longitudinal study of religion over multi-generations in, in America, and, and they just started adding secular families looking at religion and family life, and they were sort of surprised to find that actually secular parents seem to be more uh, devoted to values and ethics and and whatnot than, than many of the religious families they were studying. So I think if they're looking for community all at all, it's more for that sense of belonging, for that sense of being part of a greater whole. But you'll find that, that, that when it comes to morals and ethics, or what I found and what many studies reveal is that that's, that's probably the most solid aspect of secular life is a really strong ethical core.
0: There's a great saying in ethical culture, in the Society for Ethical Culture, um, to bring out the best in others is to walk on holy ground, which I think (laughs) emphasizes that aspect of community. Um, Did you talk to any religious people for this particular book about sort of the way they perceive atheists or agnostics or secular humanists?
2: Not as deliberately. There were a few. What I found among the religious people that I did speak with uh, while writing this book, I mean, I've I've studied religious people for other other research and other books and whatnot, but for this one, I actually didn't find a lot of haters, per se. It wasn't that they were angry at at atheism or, or fearful. More so, they just didn't quite get it. They'd say things to me like, well, I mean, if you don't have religion, you don't have anything. Or who do you call out to? When, you, when you're in a car accident, you're laying there on the, on the side of the road, who do you cry out to for help? You know, they, religion is so meaningful for them. Faith in God is so meaningful to them. They almost kind of just don't get it. How can you live without it? How can you have hope? How can you be a good person? And, and so it's more of a kind of open-minded curiosity, which I hope my book will address.
0: So perhaps a guide for, in a certain way, for people who are uh, more religious in their outlook as well. This week, the book review has an issue on world faiths of all kinds. And so I think this is an important part of that equation. The book, again, is Living the Secular Life, New Answers to Old Questions by Phil Zuckerman. Phil, thank you so much.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And now we've got Greg Coles with bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new on the list?
4: Not a lot. Readers are really hunkering down. The, the list is pretty entrenched yet again. Nothing new on the children's side of things at all. And over on the adult side, um, there are just three new hardcover bestsellers. One of them is on the fiction list. Uh, Anita Diamond, famous for The Red Tent, has a new novel out called The Boston Girl. That's new at number 12. And then on the nonfiction side of things, uh, there are two new books, both down at the bottom of the list. At number 16, the soccer goalie Tim Howard, uh, who became very famous over the summer, um, making save after save for the United States team in the World Cup, has a memoir written with Ali Benjamin called The Keeper. That's new at number 16. And at number 15, um, the longtime Los Angeles Times journalist Hector Tobar uh, has his um, fourth book. It's his second nonfiction book. It's called Deep Down Dark' and that tells the story of the Chilean miners um who were trapped underground for over two months back in two thousand and ten. He locked up the rights to that story um, so that they could only talk in the smallest terms um, before this book came out about what had happened to them. And so he's he's got the whole story. And I know he was a, a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago.
0: Yes. As he mentioned in Miami, um, the Chilean miners, the 33 miners, decided to that they would work together and tell their story as one. Um, and they would find one journalist and that to find someone who had done research, this kind of research uh, and writing before and who spoke Spanish and, you know, who had sort of newspaper credentials, that he said that he was basically the only person who qualified (laughs) uh, for the job, which is which is sad. But it's very good to see that uh, getting attention.
4: I lived in Los Angeles in the early 90s, um, and uh, that's when he was really starting his career. He was just a metro reporter, young. He's still in his 20s, a metro reporter for The Los Angeles Times. And even back then, it was clear this this was a guy to watch. It was good days for the Los Angeles Times. He sometimes shared a, a byline with a young crime reporter named Michael Connolly.
0: Is he on the bestseller? He is. He's at number eight with The Burning Room. So they share the list together. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.